This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled Medical Spanish Mix and Match Easy Spanish for Healthcare Professionals. And our author from California in the United States of America is Mernez Blades. Welcome, Mernez. Hi, Jay. It's nice to speak with you. Your book cover has a Spanish motif for our listeners. Why did you decide this book was important, and why did you write it? I wrote this book so that people can communicate immediately in Spanish using what they already know, which is body language. That's 90% of your communication. And simple things like one word. So, could I give you an example? Please, please do. Okay. Uh, the first thing that I generally teach in my courses is how to ask about pain when you're speaking with um, a patient. And so we just learn one word, and that word is duele. Does it hurt? Hmm. And from that point on, we point to or we touch the body part. So, for example, if I say, duele el brazo, el brazo is the arm. Does the arm hurt? And so then we can move to different body parts. We have perfect communication and very simple and very clear. Further on in the book, we want to go into... Um, examining the patient, and so I might choose the word to examine, examinar. Now, once again, by now you might know your vocabulary for the body parts, but if, like me, when you're on the spot, you might forget vocabulary, once again, body language comes into play. You can say, examinar, examine, or to examine, and touch the body part. Later, you can choose how to begin that communication. You have choices. But it's an adding process. Do you want to say, I'm going to examine you? He has to examine you. She wants to examine you. So it's a building process, one word, body language, and we build. So most of your teaching and instruction is to healthcare providers, not to individuals like me, who, if they saw someone that's injured, would probably go, ay caramba, or do something you, weird like that. I do teach medical Spanish, but I have taught two-year-olds all the way up to 89. Um, this year during the school year, 
I taught enrichment classes for homeschoolers, and I'm teaching adults. I absolutely love what I do, and the same things that I do with little ones, I do with my adults, because we don't use a textbook when I'm teaching my adults. I give them handouts, and of course, in medical Spanish, they do have a book. But once again, one word to begin with, body language, and we add. In your book, in the medical terms that are in your book, you're not trying to teach the medical profession a complete language lexicon, but just the one specifically related to medicine. Is that uh, my correct understanding? I'm not sure I understand the question, but I will Neither tell am I. you that <laughs> <laughs> no, my... <laughs> I have uh, different sections in the book for different body systems and different issues that might come up. Um, yeah, my, my basic question was, you don't have to be fluent in Spanish in order to use the contents of your book if you're in the medical profession? Absolutely not. All you need is one word. And then you just begin to add that you use body language with your one word until you're comfortable enough with the building process. But it's very important. Um, let me give you an example. Sure. I ran into a healthcare provider not too long ago. And um, she happened to be a nurse practitioner, and she said, you know, my aide is fluent in Spanish. She grew up speaking Spanish. She said, but I know medical terminology. Now, that's my goal. So here was her story. She said, my aide told me that the patient was suffering from a bladder problem. But she said, I knew medical terminology and I knew the problem with the lady was her gallbladder. Mm -hmm. So I think what I'm saying is that we each need to take responsibility for learning the vocabulary and being sure that we have a clear communication. Um, I spoke with a psychologist, and although I don't have a psychology section, I do have... Um, an intake, a clinical history, and an intake exam with yes-no questions. Now, back to my psychologist, she said, my translator's fluent in Spanish, but I'm trying to determine if the client is suicidal or not. So I asked, do you feel hopeless? Well, my translator used the word for desperate. Well, hopeless is a whole different word. We have very fine nuances when we're making a diagnosis. So it's, once again, incumbent upon the examiner, the healthcare provider, to know that vocabulary. You don't have to be completely fluent, but you do have to be familiar with the vocabulary. In the methodology you outline in your book, you note this, that after 24 hours, we remember 90% of all words that we see, say, and hear while speaking Spanish. And you have a, a diagram that shows 10% lecture, 20% audiovisual, and so on. Is, there, is this the, the method that you recommend for all learning processes? 
Absolutely. Um, if I can teach a two-year-old how to talk about pain, then I can teach an adult. But that's done with body language and one word, and then when we master the one word, we add to it. Um, so what you see and say and do, you have 90% recall. And that's why it works especially well with the medical profession because you're in there using your body language, trying to communicate with, um, with your clientele. You also advocate fun or enjoyment while you're doing the learning process and music. What's the importance of music in your learning process? Well, music is rhythmic and it is the rhythm that helps to imprint. Language is rhythmic. And um, as we begin to say the words, if we can say them to music or if we can create a rhythm, tapping, I generally have my adults stand up so they get to moving as they're speaking, either to the music or to the rhythm of the words, because that will help imprint. And it's adding one modality. I'm always showing visuals, and that's the key, is being visual. In medical Spanish, we're, you've got your client right there. And it's auditory because you're speaking it and you're hearing it. So um, there are great debates that go on today about which came first, music or language. In the 182 pages that you have penned, would you describe this as a self-learning book or would you say it was a guide for professionals to teach professionals? This is a self-help book. This is a self-teaching medical Spanish book. It teaches you how to start with a simple expression such as my head hurts, change the body part to my leg hurts. We move on to yes, no, are you in pain, are you hurting, yes or no, and short answer, what is hurting, and then we move into phrases. Later in the book, I have some translations, but they're all done in phrases. They're written in phrases with the word-for-word -word correspondence so that as you learn your Spanish, you can take the phrase and change it for another phrase, or you can increase your vocabulary just by looking at the correspondence to the two words. And so this way you are continually learning. That's a fabulous idea. Uh, now, introduce this book to my listeners in a couple of sentences. With my book, you can communicate in Spanish and gain the benefits of a better and safer experience for you and your patients. Well, I was going to say I could give you an example, but uh, we may not have time just here. Well, we are eating breakfast, so it uh, it may uh, slow us down a little bit. Nothing worse than cold huevos rancheros. I I keyed. I will edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, are there other books that have been written that address this very same subject? Other authors and other books, or is yours unique? Well, there are other 
medical Spanish books out there, but in my experience, many of them give a long sentence and underneath a translation, but there's no correspondence between the words. And so you can't learn. What you need to do is memorize a whole long sentence without being exactly clear of what you're saying. So, no, there's nothing like mine. There are books with vocabulary, but then again, you're not communicating, and you're not building your communication. Simple words, simple phrases, and simple ideas. That's basically the format for your book. Absolutely. I made translations for physicians who requested them along the way as I was teaching, and I put them into the book as examples for very simple ways to communicate using what you've learned in the book, but making it very simple. Mernez, your first name gives the indication that you have a Spanish background, M-U-R-N-E-Z. Is that correct, or how did you come to be fluent or at least knowledgeable about Spanish? Do you know, I didn't grow up speaking Spanish at all. I got a degree in Spanish, and I wasn't fluent. I studied in four different places in Spanish-speaking countries, and I learned to love the culture but I wasn't fluent. I was always worried about speaking correctly. I needed a book like mine. So this is part of the reason I want people to have the opportunity to see and to use my book. And you've developed some learning techniques that perhaps were not shared with you as you were trying to learn the language. Oh, absolutely. It was like a math course, memorizing endings and manipulating them. And so I was worried about perfection, and that's not something to worry about. Hispanic people are loving and forgiving, and they will help you, and you will learn from them as well. I took high school uh, French for a number of years, and uh, can repeat it and read it well, but don't understand it, can't converse in the language. And part of that is the approach to learning, and uh, you have bypassed that or at least given some alternatives, which I think are going to be very helpful. Thank you. I am in agreement with you. What was the most challenging part of writing your book, Medical Spanish Mix and Match, and how long did it take to complete? Oh, for heaven's sakes. For me, the most challenging part was learning the word processing program. Um, However, I began this book in 2007 and copyrighted it, and then finally I decided to publish in 2011, and I didn't realize um, how long that process could take. But I think that I have a much better um, product for that experience. Well, on behalf of medical professionals, of which I am not a member, I think this is a great book. And the title again is Medical Spanish Mix and Match, Easy Spanish for Healthcare Professionals. Our author, Mernez Blades, who has joined me from California. Mernez, Mernez, where do we get copies of your book? You can go to Amazon.com, iUniverse.com. I have a website 
That's Camino Espanol.com. And how is, I'm sorry, how is that spelled, Camino Espanol? C-A-M-I-N-O-E-S-P-A-N-O-L.com. Wonderful. And you mentioned, I think, in our private conversation that you also are doing some blogging. Is that on your site as well? I am developing a blog, and it's not active at this time, but it will be. Um, because I've had a lot of wonderful experiences in the process of making the book, and I think those little side things make understanding the culture a little bit easier. That should be very enjoyable. And our listeners, you can do a web search under Mernez Blades, M-U-R-N-E-Z, last name B-L-A-D-E-S, and keep up with her book and also any future endeavors that she engages in. Thank you, Mernez, for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Jay. It's been a pleasure. Honored to visit with you as well. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Hi, everybody. This is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Hello, this is iUniverse Radio. I'm Brian Houston, and we are talking today with Jerry D'Alessio. He is the author of a book entitled Iraq Dreams. And we're talking to uh, Jerry right now, who is at his home in Philadelphia. And Jerry, first of all, thank you very much for being on with us this afternoon. Oh, it's my pleasure, Brian. Tell me a little bit, first of all, about your background. I understand you uh, had a professional career as a psychologist for almost 40 years. Talk a little bit about what you did. Well, that's correct. Um, I was, uh, for about uh, 36 years, uh, a licensed practicing psychologist in uh, New Jersey. Um, And uh, for much of that time, I was um, employed in uh, community mental health centers, um, but at one point, um, in addition to that, started a private practice. And then uh, for the last 15 years or so, was uh, in private practice up, up in North New Jersey. Okay, and uh, so now now that you are a retired psychologist, you're now a full-time author, is that correct? I guess so. Um, writing is one of the things that I've always wanted to do, and once I retired uh, back in 1998, uh, it took me a little while to get started, but uh, eventually I did, and, and so I've been writing uh, approximately these last 10 years. And this is your third book? 
Well, it's the third book that I've published with iUniverse. Uh, I've written more, <laughs> but uh, Iraq Dreams, uh, I'm, I'm very proud of. Uh, iUniverse designated it as a, an editor's choice, and um, yeah, I'm excited about it. It's a good book. Outstanding. Well, let's talk a little bit about Iraq Dreams, first of all. What's the uh, premise behind the book? Well, um, the, uh, the the inspiration for the book uh, really uh, was uh, from the, uh, the terrible or- ordeal that the reservists and the National Guard, uh, the men and women especially, had to go through. Uh, it was bad enough for regular servicemen, people who've enlisted and, and, you know, had some expectation that if there was a war, they would have to fight it. Uh, but the, the reservists and the National Guard uh, and, uh, really were subjected to, I thought, um, unfair uh, circumstances and pressures and expectations. I mean, uh, there were stories at the time, back in 2003, 2004, um, and, and around that time of their being under-equipped. Uh, there were stories about uh, parents and friends sending money to uh, to their, uh, their sons and, and loved ones uh, so that they could get more body armor or have money to buy stuff to uh, armor their uh, Humvees. And so <clears throat> that that uh, situation for the reservists and the National Guard people especially, I was very upset by. And I wanted to write a story uh, and make it, make it personal, kind of put a face on that. And so that, that was the major uh, inspiration for writing that. I wanted to, to document uh, or portray uh, the variety of... Um, awful problems that those returning vets, especially severely wounded vets, had to deal with. And that's what this is about. Um, The uh, uh, returning vet uh, from Iraq who uh, suffers an amputation and, in effect, has to deal with uh, restarting his life, redefining who he is or who he wants to be. Was there anyone that you treated during the time that you were in professional practice who, who uh, resembled the character Rick Garcia that you write about in Iraq Dreams? Well, that's a, that's a good question, Brian. Uh, actually, there was one patient I had who had been a, uh, a military officer uh, who did suffer an amputation, not as a result of combat, um, and this was back in the 1990s, um, but he did suffer an amputation, and I, as a result of that, I became aware of some of the, the special problems that amputees uh, have to deal with. Um, but I also had a, a, another couple that I had seen uh, whose marital dynamics um, kind of uh, are reflected in uh, in Rick Garcia's um, marital dynamics with his wife Coralie in the novel. Yeah, so it, yeah, it, I, I did have that, that that personal connection. And you point that out in the book. Uh, not only is this uh, this returning soldier coming back uh, having lost a leg, 
but uh, in the process also you you talk about their marital issues and and a lot of that goes unnoticed by those of us who do not have someone who's involved in a military battle or or have to have to, to sacrifice their spouse going away for extended periods of time and the trauma that that uh, poses talk about the uh, the special uh, challenges that faced Rick when he returned from the United States, not only because he did have to have his leg amputated, but also the personal uh, wreckage that he had to deal with. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's true. Uh, when Rick, uh, who had started out, uh, kind of a, a little bit of the backstory there is that Rick had, had intended to be a uh, you know, career military person, um, but then he met Coralie, and, and she wanted to get married. She wanted him home. Uh, so he, he left the service, and he joined the reserves. And then, like 15 years later, you know, when he's in his mid-40s, uh, he gets called up to, uh, to Iraq, and he figures, well, okay, so he can serve six months. You know, that, that was what was being expected. And he, he's an engineer. He has a little engineering business up in New Jersey. Um, and he goes off, but he goes off for 18 months, and his business goes down the tubes. Um, his his wife um, decides that she's not going to put up with this anymore, and she writes him a letter, which unfortunately he gets the day after he wakes up after his surgery and has had his leg amputated. But he has to deal with his marital separation, the loss of his children, the loss of his his. Um, his business, his whole identity as a person, as a man, as a you know, supporter of his family, everything has gone down the tubes. And one of the things that he does, which is, again, typical, um, uh, is that he, he starts to, uh, to abuse alcohol as a way of um, trying to deal with his, 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 not only his, his anxieties and uh, his depression and his despair, but also his PTSD. I mean, um, one of the things that, that the title refers to is his recurrent nightmares of um, when he has um, his leg blown off by a, a, an IED. And I'm assuming then that you've uh, dealt with patients who've gone through trauma like that and, uh, and then you've had to try to help bring them back to, to some kind of wholeness. Right. Well, PTSD is is uh, very common, and uh, right now, um, well, I say right now, but, you know, in the last uh, 10 years, uh, uh, there's been a lot of focus on PTSD with regard to returning vets, but originally, um, PTSD uh, was associated, most of the research on PTSD has been done first with um, Vietnamese uh, uh, veterans or veterans from the, the Vietnam War and um, victims of rape. Um, and so, uh, although I didn't have any uh, returning vets with PTSD in my practice, I did have um, many, many women who had been sexually molested or abused, um, uh, were in childhood, suffered sexual abuse, and uh, had symptoms of PTSD, so that that's a fairly common thing out out there in the general population. 
Now, in addition to the physical trauma that he dealt with in losing a leg and also the emotional trauma of having to go through a divorce, uh, then you throw into it a real monkey wrench when his kids witness a murder. Uh, so that, that adds to the drama. This is really getting into some twisted area here. Uh, talk a little bit about that aspect of the book. Um, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't know where that came from. Um, you know, uh, as I was writing, uh, Rick was, was having some drinks with with his buddies from the rehabilitation unit in the VA hospital, and his wife walks in, and um, or his his estranged wife walks in and tells him that uh, her brother has been murdered, and that their two children, ten-year-old uh, Ella and twelve-year-old Thomas. Um, have been severely injured uh, as a result. They were in the car when uh, Coralie's brother gets shot. So there's a couple of aspects there because uh, Thomas, the, the 12-year-old boy, is um, severely injured and may very well die. And both Rick and Coralie are kind of they have to they have to come together they have to support each other uh, during this uh, real traumatic uh, event in their lives but then it becomes uh, apparent that the whoever murdered um Corley's brother um may come after the kids if uh, if he or they find out that the kids are still alive and may be able to witness them. Um, so, yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, suspense and tension um, surrounding uh, surrounding that. And one other uh, social aspect of this that you cover in the book is something to do with multiracial relationships. How does that factor into all of this? Um, I'm not sure how that started. Um, it may... It may be because here in Philadelphia, uh, like uh, where you are in Texas, uh, there's a large um, um, Hispanic population, uh, uh, um, often uh, many Mexicans uh, here in Philadelphia. So that that may have planted a seed in the back of my mind. I may also have been a victim of a stereotype of uh, the armed services being primarily uh, manned or large, to a large extent, manned by minorities. Although that may be less true now than than it was, um, you know, ten years ago. <laughs> Excuse me. But once once I started with Rick Garcia being of um, Mexican American uh, background, um, there was no reason not to have his wife be. Uh, half African American, and um, <laughs> interestingly, uh, Coralie's father is is um, a Jewish fellow from New York, um, but uh, Coralie's mother is half African American and half Native American. Uh, so I, it just seemed natural to kind of have this diversity, um, you know, be who they were. Well, it sounds like um, two things here. Uh, on a realistic level, it would sound like a lifetime worth of therapy. And, and then the, the fact that you squeeze this into 222 pages is very impressive. 
takeaways? What are some takeaways? What are some things that you want people to come away from reading your book? Uh, feeling, uh, learning. Tell me about that. I guess one of the things I'd like people to take away, aside from from um, enjoying the story uh, and learning something about this, oh, the variety of severe problems that returning vets and especially severely wounded vets um, have to face, um, is, is the fact that you, you, when you go through an experience where you feel like you have lost everything, um, as traumatic, as frightening, as disheartening as that may be, uh, there is there is hope. Um, you can you can turn lemons into lemonade. Um, it it is possible to put the pieces back together. Maybe not in the same way um, that your life was before this terrible event, but you can put your piece the pieces of your life back together in a new way. And uh, and life can go on. And how that is done, you'll have to read in the book to uh, find out how you resolved all those issues. Right. All right. Exactly. Hey, Jerry, tell me a little bit about how you can get Iraq Dreams. Well, it's published by iUniverse, of course, um, and so it can be uh, purchased from them directly, but also from... Um, you know, online at uh, Amazon or Barnes and Noble, and it comes in a paperback as well as an ebook uh, edition. So people can can download it, you know, uh, to their Kindles or Nooks or whatever. Well, it sounds like a fascinating book. Uh, you took on a lot of topics. Uh, I'm anxious to read it. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you, Brian. Thank you for having me. The name of the book is Iraq Dreams. Again, the author's name is Jerry D'Alessio, and this is iUniverse Radio. Thank you very much for listening. Okay. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today is titled, We'll All Die as Marines. One Marine's Journey from Private to Colonel. And I welcome the author, Colonel Jim Bathurst, USMC, retired. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Thank you and very much, Jay. If I may call you Jim, I shall do so at your permission. Please do. 
Yes. Thank you. Tell me about your story. This is autobiographical in nature, but you have 562 pages. You must have a tremendous ability to retain facts. Tell me the story behind this. Well, it started out when um, we retired in 1993. Uh, we, had, we owned a home outside the big Marine base at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. But, you know, how do you take 36 years of your life and stuff it in a sea bag and throw it up in the attic? Right. But yet everywhere you go in town, uh, whether to go out to eat or go shopping or whatever, you, you see Marines. So I, I kind of knew that I had to cut the umbilical cord. I, I had, to, I mean, the Marine Corps was so much a part of my life that um, that I really had to. I figured I had to get away. So we had a little small fifth wheel trailer at the time, and we uh, we put our stuff in storage for a year, and we took off and went where we wanted to go instead of where the Commandant of the Marine Corps wanted us to go. And um, we traveled around the country and. Uh, Without even talking about it, we both knew that we were really looking for a place to live. So we wound we wound up driving into Montana, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Mm. Um, and uh, so we wound up buying a small, I say cattle ranch, but it's more of a gentleman's cattle ranch than a than a big time cattle rancher. And um, um, we used to head south. Uh, the property that we bought had a had another house on it, and I had rented it out to a retired. Uh, couple, uh, in fact, an, an army major, and uh, and I would knock off his rent during the winter months, and he'd feed my cattle for me in the morning. Hmm. Uh, so we would take off in the, in the fifth wheel and head for, for uh, warmer climes, and uh, we always went down to Phoenix, Arizona, stayed at a particular RV park down there, and, and I used to sit outside in the evenings uh, with a laptop and just kind of reminisce my career and... and, and um, I, I ended up filling up uh, numerous uh, Word docs. Of uh, I'd fill one up and I'd open another one up. The thought process was to give my kids something to read when I was dead and gone, uh, that they might understand or know what I was doing when I missed so many of their firsts. Mm. You know, the, I missed her ball games. I missed her dance recitals. I missed, you know, I... I I was there in, in heart and spirit, but I wasn't there in, in um, visibly. So, yes. so that that's what it was, and and um, I just kept doing this uh, year after year after year. And uh, I have two friends, uh, both retired Marines, who are both avid writers. Uh, and I, I guess you could say I had kind of a strange career because I spent ten, almost ten years enlisted and twenty six as an officer. Um, and I, um, and they, they, they were constantly hounding me about writing a book because they thought I had kind of a unique uh, career or a unique set of assignments. So, um, I sent one of these, uh, one of these friends, a couple of these little snippets of my life, uh, I guess you could call them. And, uh, and then he really started hounding me. Um, mm-hmm. so we went back and forth. He lives in California. I was living in Montana. Um, we went back and forth several times and he, he would look over my document and he'd send it back to me with corrections and what have you. And, and, uh, and then he really started hounding me. So I said, okay, okay, I'll, we'll, we'll give it a try. Um, and, uh, so we did. And, uh, that started about 1995 
And even then, I had no intentions of, of ever publishing the book. It was more that I was going to put it into a book, maybe have some copies made and give to my kids and my friends and everything. And about, um, I guess about 2000, well, when we moved here to Illinois, uh, I guess about 2007 is when we really started thinking of this thing as possibly going into a book. So it, we worked on it for nearly five years, uh, and then by you know, and then it eventually in December 2012 uh, went to I Universe and 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 got it published. So it it really never started out as a book, um, um, but that's how it that's how it wound up. And as I said, he is a very good writer. I'm not a writer. I mean, I even to this day I don't consider myself a writer. Had it not been for my editor, uh, Major Dennis Copson, uh, this book would have never happened. It started out as reflections then of your past, and one of the things that stands out about your history, you enrolled as a Marine in the 1950s as a, as a high school dropout, and yet in future years you became a college-educated individual with a very high GPA. A lot of good things developed because of your association with the Marines, didn't it? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I um, you know, when I went to college, I was 35 years old. I went to night school for, for, for over nine years, accumulating two years' worth of college credits, and applied uh, to the Marine Corps to send me uh, on, it's uh, actually the college degree completion program. We call it bootstrap. And um, so they sent me off to uh, Methodist College in Fayetteville, North Carolina, for 16 months, and I got a... Uh, I got a degree with a 3.98 grade point average, Phenomenal. Uh, which just shocked everybody. <laughs> I got one B in four years of college. Wow. And, uh, you but know, the, but, had it not been for my Marine Corps training and discipline, uh, there's no way that would have happened. I was going to say, uh, did it shock your professors? Uh, did they, uh, did they oh, get yes. shocked? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what were the, the underlying stories? You started out just as a personal reflection and with no intent to, to publish, but as you completed the book and began to reflect back over what you had written, were there some things that even shocked you as you began to, uh, to read them again? Well, it did. It, uh, I have been accused um, by, by uh, many uh, of my contemporaries that I served with in the Marine Corps uh, that got the book and, and read it and said, how in the world did you remember all this stuff? I mean, how did you... I mean, in 1959, I was stationed in Yakuska, Japan as a PFC, and I, and I you know, as I say in the book, I, I called out some... I mentioned some names of my friends, Danielle Vick from, from uh, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, and... Harold Jewell from Baltimore, Maryland, and Corporal Rickon from Cumberland, Maryland. And they said, "What'd you do? Keep a journal?" And I said, "No, I, 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 I guess, I guess I was so, you know, into the thing of this brotherhood that uh, that the Marine Corps creates within people that I just remembered those things." But also in my attic were numerous, numerous boxes of pictures, uh, you know, memorabilia where I served and, and you know, with, with names on them and everything else. And I, so for, for that, for that five years that we worked on it, my office was looking at so 
somebody threw a grenade in it. I mean, there was there were boxes sitting all over the place, and I I was digging into them, and I used to have a, a writing a little tablet beside my bed, and and I'd be I'd wake up in the middle of the night remembering a name, or I would be watching TV, and some and, and somebody on TV was named Brown, and I'd say Brown. That was his name, Corporal Brown. Hmm. <laughs> I, hmm. And I'd, I'd grab a tablet and write his name down. I mean, it 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 surprised me that I was able to remember so much of those 36 years and the and the people that I that I you know that I served with. And, you know, I'm sure they they made such an impact on me on me that uh, that that I just I I remember that 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 I think was the most shocking revelation for me that I was able to remember all that stuff. One of your chapters is Staff Sergeant Chesty. Does that refer to you or someone else? No, it's about a dog. Really? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, the Marine Corps mascot has always been the English Bulldog. Right. And and when I was stationed at Marine Barracks 8th and I in Washington, D.C., which is, which happens to be the oldest post of the Corps, um, and it's a it's it's a ceremonial unit. Well, they have a dog. They, they had a dog. Well, they still have one, but they had a dog then named Chesty, and they had a record book on him. And he was part of the evening parade that they put on on Friday nights. Um, and uh, he's named after you know, of course, Chesty Puller, Lewis B. Puller, uh, probably our most our most famous Marine. Um, and that's a, that's that's what that chapter's about. It's about it's about a dog. <laughs> Fascinating. But you also have done the book or have written the book in basically chronological order. So there is a method to your madness. Well, uh, I think most you know. I've, as you well imagine, I I have quite a library of military books. I mean, uh, that's that's what we do in the Marine Corps. We we, we read military history and study it to to learn from it uh, and everything. And and many military books are written by flag officers, admirals, and generals. And and it's kind of you know their point of view of of, um, of the military. As I was writing this, I wanted to follow my career, and I wanted to be able to, for example. Uh, there's a chapter in there called The Private's World, uh, which is a unique world all of its own. There, there is no, there is no, and I say this without any equivocation, there is no position in anywhere in the civilian world that equates to that of a private. I mean, he's told when to get up, he's told when to go to bed, he's told what to wear, what not to wear, when to go to chow. Um, I mean, he, 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 he. He, he has no responsibility whatsoever. So when I wrote that chapter, I wrote it as Private Bathurst. Hmm. Uh, you know, exactly what it was like to be a private. And then when I made corporal, I wrote, I wrote you know, that section of it coming from a corporal, mm-hmm. from a sergeant, from, you know, on up. So, so I think it's kind of unique in that respect that, that, that uh, it... it uh, you're reading something coming from a private, not from a retired colonel. And which was your favorite grade as you progressed through the ranks? Uh, I've been asked that question, Jay, uh, so many times, and and I I don't even hesitate to to, um, uh, to answer. I say sergeant. Mm. 
I, I think being a sergeant was was um, was the most rewarding, the most fun uh, time that I had in the Marine Corps. I had, uh, as I grew in rank uh, to lieutenant colonel and colonel, you know, a lot of my lieutenants would ask me that question. Right. And I would say, uh, sergeant. And they'd say, you mean, you mean uh, it's not colonel? And I said, hey, being a colonel isn't fun at all. Uh, I said, <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, as a sergeant, I had fun. Uh, and I had all the responsibility that that uh, that I wanted. Um, I believe to this day that sergeants run the Marine Corps. You know, the the battalion commander can say the area looks like trash. There'll be a field day tonight. Mm-hmm. He tells that to his company commanders, and the company commander goes to his first sergeant and says there'll be a field day tonight, and and tells his lieutenants there'll be a field day tonight, and and um, uh, and then it goes down to the platoon sergeants, and the platoon sergeants say, all right, guys, we have a field day tonight, you know. But then finally the sergeant says, get off your ass and grab a broom, and let's get this place cleaned up. Wow. That's where the rubber meets the road. The sergeant right. is the guy that, that um, you know, that does everything. And and I enjoyed that. I And you're close to the troops. You, 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 um, you, you don't have to work at finding out what the hum is because uh, you're right there with them. Now, you've also stated in your book that, or at least have the opinion, that some people need to be made successful even if they object. Explain how that works. Well, you know, everybody everybody has their own life's goals. And I think one of, your, one of our jobs as leaders, and this applies to the civilian world as well, although I have never worked in the corporate world, uh, my, my bride... Uh, has worked in the corporate world. She was a a uh, executive when we met in Chicago. She was the executive assistant to the president of a major Fortune 500 company. So she mm-hmm. she has a lot of experience in the corporate world. And and her over the years we've talked and she and she comment, commonly remarked that you know well the things you're telling me are the things that are really missing in the corporate world. Um, you know, you have to make somebody successful, and I'll give you a, the perfect example is recruiting duty. Probably the most, the toughest peacetime um, assignment one can have in the military, um, and um, you, you kind of have to make them successful. You know, I we. we recruiting is a three-year tour, and for those of us in charge of it out there, we. We, we often look at it as, as 36 one-month tours. Mm. You know, you start out the month, uh, you know, you've got a production goal, and, and, um, and uh, you know, you go through the month, and you, you just, you, sometimes you become an ogre, making people make telephone calls to set up interviews. I mean, you, you literally browbeat them. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you know, you you literally force them to 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 do what what they know they have to do. But you know, human nature is you know leads them to do things otherwise. And right. and you you do that all month long so that you can hug them on the thirtieth day of the month and, and tell them how much you love them and how much you how much you 
you respect what they've done and, and how proud you are of them. And the next day is the first of the month. And you start all and, over and again. You start all over oh, again. Wow. See, yes. it, 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 uh, that, that's what I mean by it. I mean, there's other examples I could give, but that's probably the most, the, the easiest example to give is making somebody do something that you know and he knows that he needs to do to be successful. As some of your history involves Vietnam, which was a very uh, difficult time for the United States, uh, not only on the events of of going to Vietnam, but also coming home. Have you been back to Vietnam since everything has no. settled down? No, I, no, I have not, and I have no desire to go back. No desire. I, I uh, yes, it. Uh, interestingly, that was not part of the book. Uh, okay. There was nothing in the book about Vietnam. I skipped that 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 uh, that portion of my life. And my my editor, who is also a Vietnam veteran, uh, he uh, he balked at that and he hounded me for months until I finally gave in and said, "Okay, I'll 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 include uh, a chapter or two on Vietnam, but there'll be no gory details. Um, you know, it it will be." It will be, uh, you know, things that that anyone can read and not feel queasy about reading. Uh, so I did that, um, and then when I sent him uh, the, uh, the the next chapter, which was my next assignment after after uh, Vietnam, uh, he immediately came back to me and said, "You don't have a chapter about how we were treated when we got back from Vietnam." And I said, "No, no. I'm not going to do that." Right. Uh, and, but, and I'm sure, uh, uh, speak, speaking yeah, for my yeah, neighbor, who is a, who's a, an ex-Marine and an ex-Sarge, I'm sure he would uh, respect that and enjoy reading your book because it's not there. So I, I think that probably was a wise decision. Is there anything in your book, or reflecting back, uh, what was the most enjoyable aspect of your years in the service? Fellowship. Um. You know the the Marine. I I I spent a tour with the Army, uh, which was a very rewarding tour. I spent two years at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. In fact, that's where I did an awful lot of my my night school work. Um, and uh, so I I I'm familiar with the Army, uh, and I'm quite familiar with the Navy because mm-hmm. we, you know, Marines, amphibious, we 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 are attached to it. We spend a lot of time aboard Navy ships. But I had not. I, I've never spent any time at all uh, with the Air Force, except at a joint service school that I attended for six months. So I can really just speak about the Marine Corps. But there, there, there is a, there is a, uh, there's a brotherhood among us uh, that uh, you know you can call it an alumni or a fraternity or or whatever. We we. Uh, uh, I think that's the thing that I that I loved about the Marine Corps. I mean, I I, I just I loved working with people. Um, I, I loved I loved making people successful and and just watching them glow with you know with pride and. Uh, um, I mean, my wife keeps telling me you you know she she did not like the fact that I retired. She was not ready to retire when I retired, but I but I was. And and um, and anyone who reads the book will find out why. 
I, I finally decided to retire. I, and I made that decision. It was a snap decision. I just came home from work one night and said, uh, "Hun, uh, we're retiring," <laughs> and that was it. It, 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 it was no, I never, ever thought about retiring until I made the decision to retire. Right. The year before that, I was, I was, uh, I have a very good friend that um, retired as a colonel. He retired a year before me, and I attended his retirement uh, in Washington, D.C., and he and I were sitting out on the steps after there was a retirement party going on inside, but Dan and I were sitting out on the front steps drinking a beer, and I said, Dan, uh, why are you retiring? And he said, because it's time. Huh. I said, well, how do you know it's time? He said, trust me, you'll know. Right, you'll and, know. And he was right. A year later, <laughs> it, 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 I, yeah, it was time for me to go. Amazing. Uh, were, there, were there challenges in, in getting your book to completion? I mean, do you have probably so many stories that you could have told and didn't. Uh, were there any challenges that, uh, that you had to overcome? Um, yes, there was the, the, um, um, you know, the constant rewriting, like I said, I'm not a writer. Um, uh, English was my worst subject in school. I don't think I ever passed an English class. And, and I, I, uh, the constant rewriting, you understand I'm in Illinois. My, my, uh, my, uh, uh my editor is in Oceanside, California, um, <laughs> You know, we, we, we talked daily, sometimes three, four, five times on the phone. We constantly send emails back and forth. Um, you know, when you write a fiction book, and I don't know, I've never written one, but when you write a fiction book, you put in anything you want to. <laughs> yeah. But when you write a nonfiction book, all your facts have to be verified. Right. And, and uh, so, you know, a lot of times I would... I would uh, I would write something as I as I remembered it, and Dennis would come back to me and say, you know, that wasn't the name, you got the name wrong, uh, and and so we ha- I'd have to go back and, you know, and thank thank goodness for Google, uh, <laughs> you know, and 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 try to uh, that was the most frustrating thing about it is I, had it had it not been the Marine in me. I would have probably given up after the first year. Well, <laughs> but, well, but once we started it, I said, we're, you know, we're going we're we're to finish this it. Thing the, end. the title of the book is We'll All Die as Marines, One Marine's Journey from Private to Colonel. Our guest has been Colonel Jim Bathurst, USMC, retired. Jim, thank you for completing the book. Where can my listeners get copies of it? Uh, well, you can uh, you go to, the, to uh, it, it's sold on all the online stores, um, Amazon, Barnes Noble, uh, and uh, you, you can also go to the website. iUniverse runs a website for me. It's it's entitled "Will All Die as Marines?" Of course, without the apostrophe um, in the title, but the W E L L instead of W E apostrophe L L. Uh, Will All Die as Marines dot com. Uh, or um, I uh, I get a lot of requests for signed copies, so I I have been buying uh, hard cover. I don't buy the soft covers or or anything. I buy the hard covers, and I and uh, if someone wants an autographed uh, copy, they can email me at sgtb, which stands for Sergeant B. That was my that was my name as a as a young sergeant. Everybody called me Sergeant B. 
Uh, Sergeant B um, at Royale, R-O-Y-E-L-L dot org. And uh, they can, or you can go to the website, and through the website you can contact me. And, and when I sign the books, I, I just don't sign them. I, I like to, so I like to talk to the person that I'm signing it uh, for and sending it to, and I, I, I try to personalize it as, as, uh, as best I can. Well, thank you, Colonel, for joining me today and sharing not only your story, but also your years of service, which we appreciate and applaud. The title of the book, again, is We'll All Die as Marines, One Marine's Journey from Private to Colonel, and our guest, Colonel Jim Bathurst. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.